Clay Shirky's latest book is Cognitive Surplus, Creativity and Generosity in a Connected Age. Clay, you write about how after World War II, we as a society had prosperity and time on our hands, so we watched sitcoms. Why sitcoms? <laughs> Well, sitcoms were what were on in the evening. I mean, the bigger question is sort of why why TV and in particularly why that much TV? Yeah. And it was sort of the, the, the concurrence of two forces. One was uh, the rising educational attainment and the shift from being an agrarian society left people with a lot more free time. The 40-hour work week became normal for many more people. And at the same time, we suburbanized. We simply moved far away from one another. And we moved into places where uh, getting around meant involved getting in a car rather than walking. And so between those two forces, we had a lot more free time and a lot fewer ways to, to use it socially. And television stepped into the gap, and it became the number one use of free time uh, every place in the developed world. Well, and television kind of simulates a social experience without actually offering it. So did that satisfy some instinctive need to socialize without the actual experience? Yes. Well, this is actually the really pernicious effect. It's called uh, the social surrogacy hypothesis, and there's been quite a lot of interesting research on it recently. And the social surrogacy hypothesis says exactly what you just said, which is that we watch TV. When we watch TV, it makes us feel less lonely, but it has the paradoxical effect of actually increasing disconnection from other people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is a palliative, but not a cure for the very condition it worsens. Mm. You, you keep eating, but you, you're still hungry. You get hungrier, in fact, because, of course, every hour you spend watching TV is probably an hour you're not interacting with anybody else. So to make an unfair leap forward in time, then, let's let's come all the way up to the present day. Now we have the Internet. Now we have this ability to create and interact with our entertainment. And an example that you use of, of the state of of media and media interaction today is the lolcats. Tell us what yes. what that is and what that means. A lolcat is a cute picture of a cat made even cuter with the addition of a cute caption. The uh, the overall effect of cat plus caption being to make the viewer laugh out loud, hence the lol in lolcats. Right, so you and, have a kitten and he's saying, you know, uh, you put I, a voice I, balloon saying, I can has cheeseburger. Yeah, I can ask you. You don't even need the voice balloon anymore. All cats have dispensed with the voice balloon as a convention, and the kitten is saying, uh, you know, I can has cheeseburger or bandit cat just ate at your burritos. Uh, cats apparently cannot conjugate uh, very well, and they always write in sans serif font. <laughs> and a lot the, of all caps as well. And a lot of all caps. Yeah, you know, that's right. There's, it's caps lock on if you're a lolcat, by and large. <laughs> And, and lolcats are, are you know, one of the examples of the kind of silly throwaway culture we get with the Internet and with digital media. Uh, and I, I introduce them as a kind of reasonable candidate for the stupidest possible creative act. And <laughs> yeah, because yeah, these are all being made by, uh, by end users, by, by ordinary people on their own computers and then posted into a public forum. Right. Lolcats, lolcats is a completely amateur medium. There are no professional purveyors of lolcats. And yet... Uh, even even if we stipulate that it is the stupidest possible creative act, right? There's other candidates, but lolcats will do as a as a general case. It's still a creative act, which is to say, you are still doing something. So there is certainly a spectrum from the kind of throwaway mediocrity of lolcats all the way up to sort of large, important cultural 
cultural events uh, like Yushahidi, the crisis mapping service that I talk about, or like Wikipedia, the the now the most important reference work in the English language. And yet that spectrum from lolcats to Wikipedia uh, is a spectrum, which is to say people can, once they start making things, learn to make things better. And I contrast that with the gulf that exists between doing something and doing nothing. And someone who makes even one lolcat has crossed that gulf, has gone from from treating the media environment as as nothing more than a site of pure consumption and moved into uh, moved into doing something. And what's the proportion of people who might be making even a small creative act like a funny kitten picture or updating the Gulf oil spill Wikipedia page? What's the gap between the amount of people doing that versus the amount of people uh, laying around in their living room watching Glee? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because there's no there's no uh, convincing numerical answer right now, in part because we've lost the ability to distinguish between personal and public media. Right. In a world where there's a television and a telephone, you can make a really strong distinction between talking to your friends and something that's being broadcast to the world. But on Facebook, you have this sort of disorienting question of. You know, everybody's making media of a kind on Facebook, whether they're updating something or they're posting a picture or they're writing on someone's wall. And that's in this spectrum between public and private. So if if you say, how many people are making material to be read or listened to or watched or viewed uh, by some other group of people, it is substantially all users of the Internet. Because the social networks have now habituated everyone to the idea that making and sharing things, even if it's just news of your life, is how you socialize. So all 500 million Facebook users are creating content. It's not well to the to the 500 million question. It's not clear from that number how many of those people are active Facebook users, but certainly all active Facebook users are are active by by virtue of the fact that they create content. In a way, active on Facebook and creator of content are simply synonyms for the same thing, for the same activity. But but where does it measure up to how many to people who are passive? Is is there such a thing as a distinction anymore between active engagers in media and passive? Sure. I mean there are, there are there are there are plenty there's plenty of passivity, uh, but in a way people people who use digital media People who get mobile phones, people who get computers, people who get connections to the internet, are leaving the world of pure consumption, right? And they are they are starting to engage in creation for other groups of people to consume, even if it's just groups of their friends. So in the United States now, it is a small minority of people who continue to engage in purely passive consumption of purely public media, right? That was the absolutely normal case in the 20th century for anyone who watched television because you had no way to respond. Nobody could make media to be consumed by groups unless you ran a fanzine or published a newsletter. And those, of course, were completely minority activities. Now, right, the idea of publishing a family newsletter is simply what people do on Facebook all day, every day. Right. So then where it, it sounds like this is all sort of in its infancy, you know, the the idea yeah. of microblogging sites like Twitter or sites like Facebook where you're running a family newsletter and, and creating a blog about your family, even if you might not realize that that's what you're doing. Where is this going to take us? 
Well, so this is, I think, the really important question. This is the question I end the book with. Uh, the way I frame it, the way I frame it there is that behavior is motivation filtered through opportunity, right? Technology has given us lots and lots of new opportunities to interact with one another, both online, obviously, but also to use the online tools to get us to walk away from our keyboards and actually interact with one another out in the real world. It's increasingly used to coordinate you know, real life activities as well. What What isn't yet clear is what kind of cultural norms are going to grow up around that medium. You know, as I said recently in a debate with Nick Carr, whose, whose book The Shallows has just come out, we got, you know, when the printing press came along, we got erotic novels a hundred years before we got scientific journals. So the the harnessing of the printing press in the service of the greater good of society took a long time. And that's, I think, where we are now. We really have to look to people who are trying to use digital tools to create civic value, uh, not just not just lolcats, right? Not just things that are out there to crack each other up. But does does a medium like the Internet or like television necessarily move to a place of greater enlightenment? When, when no. television was launched, they said this is great because now right. everybody can watch opera and nobody ever watched opera. Right, right. No. The, in fact, the distinction I'd make between the printing press and television is that the printing press enormously increased the number of producers of that material, not just the number of consumers. Whereas television, right, particularly in this country as, you know, as as sort of shaped by David Sarnoff, uh, was was an extension of the existing media world and did very little to increase the number of producers. But I, I don't believe that there is inherent in the technology some bias towards the greater good. When you see how... Uh, the how the scientific revolution progressed using print to disseminate and publish experimental results and 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 host these conversations that was by no means an obvious use of the printing press. It took a group of people who wanted those cultural norms to thrive and that's that is I think really where we are today with the internet. The basic tools. Uh, have been laid at our feet. We've picked them up, and we're doing a lot of interesting things with them. There's some, you know, very important special cases. There's a whole host of kind of silly and trivial stuff that's amusing enough, but but essentially throwaway. The 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 open question is, to what degree can we create a culture that, like the scientific revolution, takes the capabilities of the medium and does something important with it? So. Are we cavemen then with sharp sticks and, and fire and wheels right now? We've just gotten fire, yes. And, yeah. and, and we know a few things. It makes meat, meat taste better. And if you use it wrong, you burn your fingers. <laughs> but, right, the harnessing of it. I mean, the, the, you, you, you can see little glimmers of this, right? When you see the open source movement, when you see software that's created in such a way that it, it has literally has collaborators from literally all over the world working on a shared project, something that was unimaginable a few decades ago. You see the possibility for a global culture that actually creates public value, right? The, the, the web runs on open source software, the principal servers, many of the, many of the tools we all use, like, like web logs, are commonly open source. And when you see what that kind of sharing can produce in in that fairly narrow range, in, in the range of open source software, you can start to ask yourself, what other kinds of cultural work 
can be can be brought into these norms. What happens to science? What happens to academia? What happens to manufacturing? When people can share and pool their ideas at a scale that was unprecedented in the 20th century. It seems like uh, I want to talk about Facebook specifically here for a mm-hmm. moment. It seems like whenever I hear someone talk about being on Facebook, they say, I'm just on Facebook or I'm dinking around on Facebook. I'm wasting time on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Are they wasting their time? You know, I don't think that they're wasting their time. In a, in a way, I think the wasting, you know, the wasting time thing comes from a kind of apology we've always made about these tools. I think particularly in the U.S. with a kind of a, you know, a puritanical national heritage. Whenever people were asked about the Internet in the 90s, when it started to become uh, a normal possibility for some, some swath of American society, people would always say, oh, I'm going I'm to use it for research, right? I'm going to use it to look up bargains, or I'm going to use it to see what's in the public library. They had all of these kind of information-oriented and information-access-oriented ideas of what they were going to do. And then once they got hold of the Internet, what do they do? Of course, they're emailing their friends and family, right? They're sharing photos. They're, they're, they're uploading home videos. They're making and cats say funny things. They're making cats say funny things. And that, I think that gap between telling ourselves we're all kind of dispassionate infovores, when the fact of the matter is when we got hold of the medium, the most important thing attached to anybody's computer wasn't the monitor or the keyboard. It was the person. Right. We we really use these tools now more as doors than boxes. And so I think when people are you know, embarrassed about using Facebook or what have you, there is a sense, I think, that social life is a kind of um, secondary or less serious use of, of, of digital technologies. When, in fact, it's just, you know, the human condition infects everything it touches. And it has certainly touched certainly touched the Internet. It makes me wonder about whether the natural state of a person at leisure is is active or passive. I mean, if, if I'm at home at night, I might be dinking around on Twitter, but I, I want to, you know, I, I also have an urge to turn that off and turn on Letterman and just sure. sit there and receive. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I don't think that there is any natural state, uh, which is to say people respond to the opportunities in their environments. There is just, there's the state that people are currently in because those are the opportunities that appeal to certain motivations. What has happened, is that we've gone from a world where we convinced ourselves that everybody liked to be couch potatoes all the time because we thought that that's how people really were. And then we've seen when we get hold of, hold of uh, collaborative media that people like to consume, but they also like to produce and they like to share. So it's not that television or any kind of passive consumption is going away. It's just that the idea that television is a 25-hour-a-week job for every man, woman, and child in the developed world and that there are no other modes of participating in the media environment, that's, that's, what's, that's what's being challenged right now. People like a mix of now I'm playing some games, now I'm talking to my friends, now I'm watching Letterman, now I'm writing some email. And is that range of behaviors that I think is making the media environment so different today from what it was you know, even recently? But I wonder if if we're creating a media – I'll, I'll phrase it as a question to you. Are we creating a media that is at its roots going to be more interactive? I mean the Wall Street Journal reports on – reported on Wednesday about a huge increase in people watching TV and movies online during prime time instead of sitting back and watching you know, whatever sitcom CBS was serving up. And, and I know from – from that online viewing experience, 
it's more interactive because you have more choices and you're wondering where to go and you're making decisions. It, are we creating something that is just going to draw us further in? Well, so, you know, of course we'll create something that draws us further in, in the same way that any media that people like to draw them further in. I mean, this has been true since, you know, since the Codex, right? When when Gutenberg launched the printing press, right, to, to, to the horror of the people who'd benefited from the old system, uh, the Venetians began turning out book after book of contemporary literature. And the concern was that this was drawing people in and distracting their attention from the Bible and from Aristotle and Galen and so forth. And, of course, that's exactly what it did. In a way, there's no, there's no distinction to be made between something that draws some, someone in and something that people like. So it's pretty clear that when we give people access to interactive media and to social media that they like it. They like it quite a lot and they do it quite a lot. Uh, you know what we don't know, and we won't know for decades, is really what the balance of production, consumption, and sharing is uh, in some kind of steady state. Right now, because there's been almost no amateur production and almost no amateur sharing in the 20th century environment, all the changes are there. Some new equilibrium is coming. It may even be an equilibrium with majority consumption, but it will not be an equilibrium with 100% consumption and 0% production and 0% sharing. Will we, will we evolve in a higher intellectual way that, that uh, you know, by doing this, by starting with the, the funny cats talking about cheeseburgers, by updating the Wikipedia Land of the Lost page to get all the Sleestack information you can. <laughs> oh, the Sleestack. It's a great Wikipedia page. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, um, nothing, not, nothing like alternate universes to get the Wikipedia they really, pages flowing. They right. The Klingon pages are, are, yeah, exactly. Quite oh, they, they pack them in. Um, you know, but will we, will we move from kind of base entertainments that we're doing with this, uh, this cognitive surplus that we have to a higher understanding, or will it just get so diffuse that it'll encompass the very high end and the low end all at once? Well, God, so that is, I mean, so, so that is the big open question. Um, about the high end and the low end all at once, there's, a, there's a, uh, a funny quote I came across in the literature around arguments about Prince's effect on, on culture. And Harvey Suedos, an American novelist, said in the middle of the last century, or asked in the middle of the last century, is the paperback novel just going to yield an unending flood of trash, or are we going to have improved access to the classics? And the and answer course, is yes. The answer is yes, exactly. The answer is why pick? And, of course, that's the thing about abundance is it's a false choice to say, are we going to get high culture or are we going to get low culture, right? You're going to get, all, you're going to get a lot of both. I think, the, I think the bigger question is the one you started with in a way, which is where does the intellectual opportunity for this much sharing come from? Right. There's, a, there's a basic tension in Western society between roughly a Socratic and roughly a Platonic way of thinking about authority. Right. For Socrates, having the conversation and asking the right questions was the principal goal, and that was how you, that was how you moved the conversation forward. For Plato, certain things were obviously true. Certain things were obviously false. Authorities need to be put in charge, right? No poets were famously going to be allowed into the Republic because they would confuse people with distracting thoughts. And society as, society as a whole is moving from a kind of Platonic to a kind of Socratic model where our traditional structure of authority is giving way in, in, in various places and in various ways to sharper conversations. We could screw that up, however. 
we could fail to do what our 17th century counterparts did with print, which is to say, we could say, you know, lolcats are enough, and it's nice if those open source people want to create a lot of value for the public by doing what they're doing. But we're not going to move these techniques into science. We're not going to move these techniques into the academy or into business or into manufacturing. And that, it seems to me, would be a huge and, 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 and really, for society, catastrophic loss. To take a medium that puts this much productive power and this much creative leverage in the hands of the average citizen and then to do nothing more with it than self-amusement would be really a, a kind of betrayal of the things humans have done with similar media revolutions in the past. On the other hand, it's not obvious that we're going to get it right. It's certainly not like we should be sitting back waiting for the geniuses to come along and sort things out. right? It's just us. We're the only ones here, and we're the ones who have to figure out what to do with the medium. Suddenly, by making a cat tell a joke, I feel like I'm on the vanguard of society. There you go. Well, I'll tell you, the shift from couch, the, 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 the journey from couch potato-ness to, you know, real participation in your own culture begins with but a single step. And if that single step is making a lolcat, that's as good as any. Clay Shirky's latest book is Cognitive Surplus, Creativity and Generosity in a Connected Age. Mr. Shirky, thank you so much. Thank you very much.